We did it! The world's first dragon Viking utopia. Your utopia, maybe. Mine's less crowded and more... Oh! Sanitary. Hey, bud, wait up! Oh, my God. He's not the only one. She's a light fury. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Today we're at the legendary Skywalker Sound in Northern California, where we'll be talking about the sound on DreamWorks Animation's How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, the emotional conclusion to Hiccup and Toothless's journey. Joining us are Randy Tom, supervising sound designer and re-recording mixer, who won Oscars for The Right Stuff and The Incredibles. His time at Skywalker goes back to 1979's Apocalypse Now. Also joining us are Lef Lefferts, supervising sound editor and additional re-recording mixer, whose credits include The Peanuts Movie and The Crudes. And Brian Chumney, supervising sound editor, whose recent credits include Ready Player One and The Post. The trio have worked on all three How to Train Your Dragon movies, and today they're joining us to talk about the hidden world and also about working at the ranch. I'm Carolyn Jardina. Welcome to the Hollywood Reporters Behind the Screen. So welcome and thank you for joining us. First, I'd like each of you to introduce yourselves. Randy, would you like to start? Yeah, my name's Randy Tom. And I was a sound designer, supervising sound designer, re-recording mixer on How to Train Your Dragon. My name is Lef Lefferts. I was the supervising sound editor, also additional re-recording mixer on How to Train Your Dragon. And my name is Brian Chumney, and I was the co-supervising sound editor. Okay, welcome. Randy, we're going to start with you. A lot of this film involves the voices, if you will, of the different creatures. Would you... Tell us a little bit about some of the new dragons that we had in this film. The Light Fury was certainly uh, the most prominent new dragon in this film, and she was a big challenge. I've attempted before to do female creature sounds, and uh, the main challenge is that as humans, we don't really differentiate between male and female animal sounds. You know, you can't really tell whether you're hearing a male dog or a female dog or a male tiger or a female tiger. And uh, same thing for dragons. So how do you make her sound female was the big question for me. And like always, I did a lot of experimenting and tried various things and played them for Dean. And, and you know, he liked some and didn't like others so much. And turned out that you know pitching up some of the kinds of sounds that I'd been using for toothless was part of the solution including pitching up my own voice because uh, you are the voice yes, of toothless, yeah, right? some of toothless is is me my voice and we decided it would also help kind of twist her in a female direction if we used some feline kinds of sounds so there are some cats in there for the light fury and then for Toothless, did you do anything different this time around? Because he has much more of a character arc this time. Yeah, Dean really wanted the dragons to feel in this film like they spoke, like they had a language. So it needed to go way beyond just uh, kind of grunts and roars and growls. So it involved essentially sometimes putting together little sentences 
for uh, each of the dragons, and in, in especially uh, Toothless. Very often in the the first films, he would utter you know one syllable or maybe two syllables, and this time we tried to give him you know sentences, and I think it turned out way more expressive that way, and I guess we succeeded because people are telling me that it, it sounds like they're speaking a language. Could you give us an example? <laughs> yeah, I was afraid you were going to ask that. <laughs> The way that I've done Toothless's voice is not really ADR style, uh, which means automated dialogue recording, uh, which is the process that you use when a human revoices his character in post-production. And in that process, you essentially watch the sequence on a screen and you speak as you see your character speak. That's not the method I've used for Toothless. I compose it very kind of rigorously and meticulously out of bits and pieces of things. So unfortunately, it's, you know, what you're asking for is not something that I can do extemporaneously, which I could. Okay. <laughs> Brian, what were some of the sounds that challenged you? I mostly focus on the dialogue on this film. So I was mostly doing uh, all the, the production recordings and um, editing, cleaning those up, and then working with actors on ADR and uh, building the loop group. So Making sure that all of the performances are you know, the best they can be and what Dean wants is always the clear thing. And Dean always has the clearest ideas you know, of what he wants. You know, working with Gerard Butler on the second film, obviously he's not as important in this film, but he has a couple of key scenes. And uh, making sure that his performance is both you know, as stoic, is both you know, powerful and also intelligible was always a concern that even Gerard Butler had you know, to make sure that he's that stoic is understandable, yet also you know has the heart and the power that he's supposed to have. Now, many of these actors have been with the series since the first film, mm -hmm. so they've been living with these characters for a while. Does that change the dynamic at all when you're working on this third one? It does. It does because a lot of times it's seen as how the characters have aged and how the performers have kind of run with that and, and has kind of matured them has been interesting to see. And so sometimes the actors would forget where they were and say, oh, wait, no, I'm three years older. How are, I think it was two or three years older than, than the previous film. And so Jay especially was, was, really, was really good at that. And he was like, oh, yeah, no, that's the first movie's version of Hiccup. It's like, I got to be a little more gruff in this one or I have to, you know, manage my performance accordingly. So it's great working with, with such a great cast. Now, in this film, they leave Burke, their home, mm -hmm. and in parts of it, we see them in the hidden world, which is where the dragons reside. There's so much going on in the hidden world. Tell us about recording all the different dragon sounds, and then how did you mix it? Sure. I, I think one of the most uh, curious things about the hidden world is that there's a, a huge musical element to it. And um, uh, Randy and I have worked with John Powell on a lot of different films, but specifically all three of these. And... Randy and John met very early on to talk about how that handoff was going to be made. And um, they created a lot of different sort of musical elements together to blend in both on the effects side so that we could start to establish the sounds of the hidden world and then let the music take it over for certain places. And so there was a, making sure that that all blended together very easily. You'll notice that in a lot of cases, while the music's carrying everything there aren't a lot of dragon sounds but then it, it gives us the chance to 
once the music and the, the feeling of the world is established, then we get back into the story and we get it back into all of the different dragons responding to Toothless being the new king. And that handoff is very delicate and, you know, spent a lot of time going back and forth between the effects and the dragon sounds along with the music. When you enter the hidden world, it's, it's such a difference from where they are previously. Do you use Atmos differently, or how did you convey that change when they entered the hidden world? You know, the Dragon movies really lend themselves very much to Atmos in a lot of ways for us and allow us to use the ceiling to help tell that story where it's not a distraction. Atmos is a great format, and when you have that moment when you can use it to tell the story, it's great. But we also have to be really careful that you don't have people in the audience starting to look around at what they're hearing. We still want to have them focused on what Dean's trying to have them look at. So it's a, another kind of a delicate balance. But yeah, you'll definitely hear atmospheric sounds above you that you don't hear in the regular world because you're, you're in a giant cavern, basically. When you enter the hidden world, uh, you see all these kind of crystalline structures on the walls and the ceiling and you're moving past them and Dean did want them to you know emit certain kinds of sounds as if they were uh, you know resonating and uh, when left mentioned the coordination with music that was one of the most important moments because if we had produced these kinds of tonal sound effects that weren't in tune with or working with what John Powell had composed, it would have been a problem. So we came up with various kinds of ringing, humming, singing sounds that these crystals might be making. And then we handed them off to John so that he could retune them uh, when necessary to work best with what he was doing musically. There was a moment when we were in the final mix and we first played all that together. And I remember telling Gary Rizzo, I said, there's beautiful harmony between the sound effects and the music and the scene. And, and that really was. It's admirable, all the work that the sound effects department did there. Well, could we talk about that mix in the scene where, where there's no dialogue when Toothless meets the light fury on the beach between the voice that you gave them, Randy, and yeah. the sound effects and the music? It's so emotive. Yeah, of course, it in some ways harkened back to uh, the scene. Uh, in the first film. In the first film. <laughs> right when uh, Hiccup and Toothless met, and we were very aware of that. And so we wanted to use some of the same themes, but obviously not exactly duplicate the kinds of sounds that we used in the first film. I love that scene because it was such an opportunity to kind of orchestrate the sound, to make sure that the music and the dialogue, the creature dialogue that happens between the two dragons and the other sound effects don't step on each other but really complement each other and some moments in the scene are really quiet and subtle and people often think that it's the loud and complicated sequences that are the most difficult to do sound for but in fact it's often the opposite it's the scenes that are the most sparse sonically because 
you as a listener are paying attention to every little nuance. And so if something isn't believable or credible, or if it's confusing, it, it, you notice it much faster in a quiet scene often than you do in a loud scene. So that sequence was challenging for those reasons. But I loved working on it, I think mainly because of the interplay between uh, Toothless and the Light Fury. It's, uh, you know, the beginning of a romance, and uh, we hadn't really done much romantic comedy (laughs) in this series before. Uh, So it was like, you know, stepping into a new room where we could do new things in. One of the cool things about that romance was um, how Dean communicated their dialogue. Because that's that's how he treated it, right? He actually, and he would even say to us, when Toothless says this and when the Light Fury says that, right? And I think it was even in the script. I think he actually had their dialogue in the script. Well, and to go back a little to what Randy was saying earlier, you know, Dean and Randy, a lot of their talks about the interaction between the two dragons, Dean wrote dialogue for them. Wrote English dialogue. English dialogue. And, you know, that was a huge challenge to try to figure out how to get all of those emotions out, but have them still be themselves. And that's one of the reasons also why that scene plays so well is because you understand everything that they're saying to one another. You understand the little asides between Toothless and Hiccup. It all plays beautifully and we all understand it. One of the great advantages for us as uh, sound people of working on these kinds of animated films is that the way that animated films are produced, at least uh, in the U.S. and most of Europe, is that they begin sort of as radio plays. Uh, because all you have in the beginning visually is still drawings, storyboards. So as the animators and the filmmakers are trying to figure out whether scenes are working or how well they're working in those very early stages, it's crucially important that they have sound effects and, and temporary music, typically, to help tell the story. So what that means for us is that we get a chance to produce these kind of speculative sounds, including dragon vocalizations, super early, often before any animation at all begins. And that way we get feedback from Dean and the other filmmakers, the editors, about uh, what seems to be working and what they're liking and not liking so much. And it also inspires the animators to hear these sounds that, you know, it may be a a walrus breathing or, you know, shaking its blubber or an elephant snorting, the kinds of sounds that you don't normally hear every day that will give them an idea of what they might be able to do visually with a character that, you know, may not have occurred to them otherwise. And that's actually uh, very true of the Death Grippers. You know, Randy did a lot of early speculative design based on drawings and, you know, came up with some ideas that informed how they clicked and and their movement of their mouths and stuff was really informed on early sound design. Yeah, Dean had mentioned that maybe the death grippers could speak to each other with a kind of code, almost like, you know, Morse code or something like that. And so we thought, well, maybe it's this kind of clicking sound that they make with the, you know, backs of their mouths or something and we tried some experiments with that and uh, you know some of it was 
me clicking with my own mouth. I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and But I pitch it down so it seems like a much bigger creature than I am, though I'm actually a pretty big creature, to tell you the truth. And, you know, like with all these other things, we, we try things, and some work and some don't work, but that seemed to catch on, this kind of clicking communication between the death grippers. Now, something that's very unique about animated movies is obviously nothing shot, so there's no production sound, which really challenges you in a lot of ways. So maybe we'll talk about a few scenes with that in the context. Do you want to start with when the movie opens, we're at Burke, and they're having a population problem, um, an overcrowding problem, because there are so many dragons and so many humans living together. Brian? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the fun part is both making it sound crowded, but also so we, we could actually still follow the story, right? Because if it were to sound as chaotic and as maddening as it could, then we wouldn't be able to hear or follow anything that's really happening on screen or follow the story. And so since the story is the most important thing, the fun part of that sequence is we're kind of guided with sound, right? And that we're, even though there's tons of crowds and tons of dragons, we're focusing and we're watching, like we're hearing the crowd, we're still hearing day-to-day life on Burke with the human voices and the crowd sound effects and the loop group. And, and then we've also got music. So there's a lot of that was probably in the mix there was a lot of time and and effort put in that sequence to make sure that we could sell the congestion but also be intelligible and then the final climactic sequence would you talk about putting all those elements together part of what brian was just saying you know we try to in each of the departments in both uh, music dialogue effects and with foley we try to make sure that we cover every possible sound and idea and and kind of overdo it a little bit like the crowds that brian cut are bigger probably than than what's finally there because we have to be able to pick and choose where we're featuring the crowds or the principals or the dragon vocals and all that or the score and so i think that that's always the big challenge where we kind of have to have an idea of what we think it should sound like but when you get to that mix it's always going to be a little different than each of us may have imagined how it's going to be because we haven't heard the final score. We we don't have Dean with us all the time, and you know it kind of changes a little bit. Like it might be, you know, let's just let all everything go away except for the music for this one little moment, and then it's going to be all dragons when they all fly away, or or perhaps you know that one moment when you know Hiccup arrives and Toothless is gone, and you see the uh, Grimmel come up with them kidnapped. It's it's actually pretty quiet. And the sonic handoffs that happen between departments in yeah. the mix, right, where you're going from one to the yeah. other. That's a big challenge, and that's, you know, Randy and Gary and Sean have that challenge of doing that dance together and with Dean and the picture editors and the producers all kind of chiming in with it all. It's, it's a really interesting, it's probably the most fun. Because you've got a full-scale naval battle that's occurring in yeah. the midst of like them trying to rescue prisoners for, and then intimate dialogue moments in between their like romantic moments between two characters and like so much going on and so it's just constantly constantly you know guiding everyone sonically as well as visually and it always involves a lot of very meticulous uh, sound editing adjustments even in the final mix there'll be a line of dialogue that we're not hearing because it's being obscured by a you know death gripper roaring in the background or by some impact 
And very often the way to solve it is not necessarily to make the creature roar or the impact quieter, but it's to move it slightly in time. And sometimes we'll move the dialogue slightly in time too, but very often just moving a sound like a dragon roar a quarter of a second later or earlier will clear just a long enough moment to make a line of dialogue intelligible. So we spend quite a bit of time, believe it or not, in the final mix of the film doing those kinds of little sound editorial adjustments. Yeah, sound effect, you know, advanced one sound effect, quarter of a frame or something like that, and then move the dialogue a little later, another quarter of a frame, and then you open up that gap, and, you know, then it works. What's a few frames among friends, Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's almost like we're a team. (laughs) <laughs> you brought a baby to a battle. <laughs> I wouldn't do that if I were you. You've all been with this franchise since the first film. What are some of your recollections looking back on working on the trilogy? I guess my first... Uh recollection involves Toothless because I think uh, the filmmakers knew that Toothless was going to be at the center of the story from the beginning. And so one of the first things that uh, they asked me to do was to come up with some speculative sounds for Toothless. And we knew that he would start small at a certain point, but actually I I think when I began working on Toothless, the first thing I was asked to do was to come up with a big Toothless sound, and then they decided a little bit later that they should, you know, start him as a baby or a smaller creature. So I, you know, set about recording and and collecting elephant sounds. And we sent uh, somebody to Thailand to record uh, elephants at a sanctuary there. And also included whale sounds, just every kind of large mammal, you know, that I could think of. And I just remember being delighted when I started getting some positive feedback from the directors and, and the editors about the kinds of sounds that we were finding. I think the first memory for me after we started collecting all of those sounds was the challenge of Randy and I trying to build that first scene when Hiccup discovers the injured Toothless and that whole interaction and Randy creating all of these new, you know, vocals and creating this voice for Toothless. And it was all storyboards at the time. And, you know, you're, as Randy had mentioned before, you know, you're creating a radio play. There's nothing really to sync to or anything like that. You're just trying to help tell this, tell this story. And, to then take all of that speculative material that he had been working on and as he's building Toothless's voice and then sort of building the environment around it. And, was, you know, you kind of knew at that point that this was going to be a fun movie to work on. Didn't know it was going to be three fun movies to work right. on then. Well, I think, and for me, I'm probably going to be a little more sentimental. And um, I think that my biggest takeaway in memory is just kind of the crew. And it's like all the talented people that we've had, both them and all three of them. And, you know, some people that weren't on, you know, maybe one or two of them. But um, being able to work with Randy and Lef, and it's seeing so many great, talented people doing such great work and, and hearing the result. And, I mean, that first film, I can sit back and stick it on and just pretty much like I know every single sound I know every single note I know every single line of dialogue and it's still special and meaningful and it's because of 
Randy's work and it's because of Left's work and it's just everybody. So, um, do you want to give a shout out to some of the other members of the team? Oh yeah, I mean uh, Al Nelson, Al Nelson, Nelson, big time. John Null, John Null, Michael Silvers, Pascal, John Grieber, uh, Andre Finley. We should give a shout out to uh, Mr. Hester and Mr. Carr, our picture editors. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, they were just a joy to work with on all three films. Yeah, Mark Hester and John Carr, great, amazing picture editors. Yeah. Also, that was pretty amazing, too, because as with the different movies, them working with all of the dragon vocals that Randy had designed and Al and everybody had worked on, as each movie progressed, they knew these dragons as well as we did. So, you know, you get to the second movie and then to the third movie, and a lot of the dragons that have already been established, they would play with them in a very interesting way. And we were all sort of definitely on the same page from the first movie on as to how, you know, the sonic landscape should be. And the very, very involved and passionate about the sound of the movie as well. So it was a joy to work with them. Now we're here at Skywalker Sound, and I know you've mixed the movies here, but also I know Dean spent some time here writing the third movie. Randy, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the history of Skywalker Sound happened. and working here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I often say I, I was here before there was a here, because uh, you know George Lucas bought this property in the late 1970s and nothing was built on the property for a few years and uh, Ben Burt, the legendary uh, sound designer of the Star Wars and Indiana Jones films and I would come out here to the ranch and record you know gunshots and explosions we could do anything we wanted in those days uh, because we were, about that. <laughs> we were usually the only people here and sometimes we'd bring out a you know, pyrotechnics expert to, to help us if we were going to actually explode something rather large. But the acoustics here at the ranch are amazing. We have, we're in a valley that's surrounded by hills that are almost big enough to be mountains and redwood trees. And so when you make a loud sound, you're hearing it echo and reverberate off of all of these surfaces. So it's, it's an incredible place to make recordings. And it's quiet. It's super quiet. So you can record subtle things also without hearing cars in the background. Very few planes fly over this particular part of Marin County. So... I watched the buildings go up, and we recorded those, too. <laughs> uh, we're used to uh, turning on a tape recorder almost anytime anything happens that might be interesting on some future movie. And one of the things that's kept me going and interested in the work and energized is not only the, the great movies that we get to work on, but watching each new generation of people come to the ranch and Skywalker Sound and uh, the guys sitting next to me are certainly two of those and it's great to watch sort of the you know the baton being handed from people like Ben Bird and myself to these younger people and see them do things that wouldn't have occurred to us to do creatively and you know see the Skywalker tradition go on. Well, thank you, and it wouldn't uh, we wouldn't be here thank without you, you. And absolutely, and both creatively and as a friend and mentor and all of that. You can send the checks later. Okay, good. <laughs> I thought you wanted cash. <laughs> now, one of the coolest things about Skywalker from the moment I got here 14 years ago, it's a family. 
It's something that I think, you know, George always wanted this to be sort of a collegial environment. And it's just, it's amazing how everybody here supports each other and, and how we all just get to grow together and learn all from one another. I mean, isn't the day that goes by that I don't learn something from all the, from Randy for all the years I've been working with him. It's amazing to me. And it's, it's an honor and a privilege to be here. Yeah, George Lucas uh, always said that he wanted uh, Skywalker Ranch and Skywalker Sound specifically to kind of embody what were for him the best parts of film school, the you know collegiality that left just mentioned and you know, risk taking and not being afraid to experiment. You know that's certainly one of the reasons I've stayed here. This is my fortieth year at Lucasfilm, and it's that attitude that you know keeps me coming back. Thank you so much, all of you, for joining us. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you.